Good afternoon, and welcome to the eighth webinar in the 2017 MJHS and HPCO Interprofessional Webinar Series in Palliative Care. I'm delighted today to present our interprofessional series as an interdisciplinary case conference focused on a patient with dementia, COPD, and a distressed family. I'm Russ Portnoy, the Executive Director of the MGHS Institute for Innovation and Palliative Care. I'm joined today in an interdisciplinary team by four faculty, Dr. Mara Lugasi, who is the Senior Hospice Medical Director at MGHS Hospice and Palliative Care, Wanda Udelman, who is the Staff Development Manager, Linda Norris Sturtz, who's the Social Work Manager, and Rabbi Leonard Blank from Pastoral Care, all from MGHS Hospice and Palliative Care. These are our financial disclosures. Our interdisciplinary case conference describes a single complex patient from the perspective of multiple disciplines. I'll set the stage for you in some preliminary comments and then we'll present the case and discuss it together. The case we're talking about today is a 69-year-old woman with dementia and COPD who's referred to the palliative care ambulatory practice for agitation. Our practice includes a physician, a nurse, a social worker, and a chaplain, all of whom you've just met. We see the patients in the morning in our clinic. We spend typically around 90 minutes with different uh, professionals seeing the patients at different times. And then we come together in an IDT session around lunchtime to discuss the patient. Our practice has access to home health services and also home hospice, but we do not have access to community-based palliative care. Just to set the stage, let me, um, let me suggest to you what this case might reveal through our discussions this afternoon. First, the importance of assessing and managing, managing behavioral disturbances in patients with advanced dementia. Behavioral disturbances are best managed by treatment of stressors combined with pharmacological and non-pharmacologic therapies based on a careful assessment of contributing factors. Second, the management of medical comorbidities can be a particularly difficult challenge during the treatment of dementia. And third, we'll see today the importance of addressing the needs of family caregivers who may require targeted therapy because of high levels of distress or burden when patients with dementia develop behavioral disturbances. Our interdisciplinary meeting uh, typically begins with a review of the records, which we may acquire prior to the patient's visit or are brought at the time of the visit. Then we review the information that each of our professionals obtained at the time they saw the patient this morning. And then we come together for a discussion in order to develop an assessment and a plan of care. Our intent is to have a plan of care that is cohesive enough so that we can contact the patient or the family on the afternoon of the first visit and discuss with them a, a specific plan of action to address the problems that brought them to our clinic. The history always begins with the written referral from from uh, the patient's physician. In this case, it was the patient's pulmonologist. The referral says the following, patient has moderately severe COPD and worsening dementia, which is being managed by geriatrics and neurology. The family provides care at home. Recent agitation has made COPD treatment more and more difficult. Would you help with management? Thank you. The medical records that arrived with the patient from the pulmonologist are rather thin. They discuss a long smoking history in the patient, which ended 15 years ago after the patient was diagnosed with COPD. It describes gradual worsening of breathlessness on exertion and cough over a period of many years. It also notes three hospitalizations during the past two years for COPD exacerbations. Her last reliable FEV 1% measurement was about 45%. Her oxygen saturation was checked recently and was adequate. The patient use, has used inhalers with a long-acting bronchodilator and a glucocorticoid and has done so for many years. The pulmonologist's records also make note of a major comorbidity, namely the patient's Alzheimer's disease, which was diagnosed about five or six years ago, according to these notes. The patient was also diagnosed with de depression, which predated the dementia, and as the depression seemed to lift, the diagnosis of dementia became clear. The depression has not been a problem for a long time. There is also a history of hypothyroidism, hypertension, uh, and high cholesterol, which is no longer being treated. The only prior surgery was an appendectomy, and there are no reported allergies. 
The pulmonologist's notes indicate that during the past year, the dementia has worsened and the family has noted increasing cough with episodes of severe coughing and more frequent episodes of tachypnea with limited exertion. The, patient's, the patient has been having increased difficulty in the use of nebulizers during the past few months, and this has been associated with more uh, pulmonary distress. Now, it's clear that these notes are quite limited, particularly with respect to the chief complaint, which from the pulmonologist's notes seems to focus on the patient's behavioral disturbances. I think that a member of our team reached out to the geriatrician and tried to obtain additional history. Dr. Lagasse, you called him, right? I did. I did call him in, and it was actually a very helpful conversation to round out the picture that was provided by the pulmonologist. So what I learned from speaking from the geriatrician was that our patient's symptoms actually began around six to seven years ago, at which point she had a fairly extensive workup and was ultimately diagnosed with early onset Alzheimer's dementia. Um, since then, she's had a variable rate of decline. There's been times when she's been fairly stable and then other periods of time when she's had more of a rapid decline. Um, and what we've found is that in particular, um, over the past uh, year, and particularly over the past six months, this decline has really uh, accelerated. What I learned from speaking to the geriatrician that the family has been um, particularly concerned during this time, the patient is now no longer able to perform any uh, instrumental activities of daily living. And in addition to that, she now needs assistance with bathing and dressing, so the care has uh, become more burdensome. She's also developed some urinary incontinence, and last month of particular distress to the family, she's had now two episodes of fecal incontinence as well. Um, in addition, over the past month, she's had a very notable escalation of combativeness and agitation. And according to the reports of the family, apparently her behaviors most commonly are resistance to care. Notably, to she becomes very combative and argumentative when uh, they try to dress her or bathe her. She also intermittently gets agitated at night. Uh, interestingly, when I was speaking to the geriatrician, he went and he checked his calendar and realized that he's actually scheduled to see this patient um, next month because in addition to coming to see us, the family had actually called his office last week um, because they're so concerned about her, uh, her agitation and her combative behaviors. Yeah, so it's actually quite interesting. The, uh, the notes that accompany the patient uh, downplay what seems to be the major problem that we have to address, mm -hmm. which is uh, accelerating dementia with behavioral disturbances. Mm -hmm. And obviously, uh, the information that you've all acquired in meeting with the patient and the family this morning is is key to our plan. So let's let's talk about um, what each of you have found. Um, I did I do want to say that in in uh, the discussions that we had just as we sat down for this meeting. I, um, I confirmed with you all that the patient was only accompanied by her daughter today. That was the only family member mm -hmm. who came with her and that the patient during our evaluation was actually calm. Mm -hmm. She didn't demonstrate any of the kinds of behavioral disturbances that the pulmonologist and geriatrician were, were alluding to. Uh, she also was able to provide some very simple answers, so she still has some words, um, which I think is an important uh, uh, benchmark to note um, in terms of how severe her, her um, dementia is. Um, maybe we can get some additional detail from, from Wanda. You spent some time mm -hmm. with the daughter, yeah. right? Tell, tell us a little bit more about what you've got in terms of history of how, uh, how the patient is doing. Yeah, well, the daughter became, was very descriptive and was also very upset reporting, you know, that whenever she tries to help the patient with anything, the patient would lash out with her. I can do it by myself. I've done this already. The, why are you bothering me? And would try to hit her or kick her. Um, she's also very resistant to getting into the shower, which is something she never had any issues with before. Um, so she gets appears to be fearful that she's going to drown. And during the, the past week, uh, she's refusing even basic hygiene measures and cleaning herself up after she becomes incontinent or even putting on the diaper. They did hire an aide for two weeks, but the aide quit after a week due to the patient's combative behavior. Um, now they're concerned about hiring another aide, even though they do admit they need the help. They're worried about uh, liability and 
is some, a new person in the house going to make things worse? Um, she added that she and her husband are feeling very overwhelmed and exhausted trying to care for the patient. We asked to, to describe what the patient can and can't do, and she confirmed that her mother can't leave the house unattended, that she can't dress without assistance, she can comb her hair most days, but definitely not brush her teeth, definitely can't use the shower safely, she can only feed herself um, with a spoon, so, and she's on soft foods right now. She's eating two to three meals a day. She can walk without assistance, however, becomes very unsteady and her breathing becomes labored when she just goes a short distance. Um, as far as the days go back and forth, we asked about communication specifically. She has, on good days, she can respond to simple questions with full sentences, but however, on a bad day, she'll get stuck on a word or phrase, and that just adds to her level of agitation and frustration, making it very difficult to communicate. Um, along with this, the mood fluctuates. She may just cry spontaneously or just all of a sudden, for no reason, look scared or frightened. Um, she also mentioned that there's been some recent sleep issues where she is napping all day long and then awake during the night, and which causes then the, this, uh, the daughter and the husband to take turns watching her, what she calls night duty, which is also adding a stress to their relationship because they're exhausted. Yeah, that's a, that detail is very helpful. Dr. Lucasi, you were also talking to the daughter about some of the issues related to, the, to her pulmonary disease at this point, her breathlessness yes. and the status of her cough. Can you mm -hmm. fill us in? Sure. So from, from speaking to the daughter, I learned that um, the patient tends to get short of breath if she walks just from one end of the room to the other. And this can be fairly debilitating to her. And then in particular, during these periods of agitation, she often seems to struggle to breathe. She'll be, for example, panting rapidly for, for many minutes. Um, she also has, as we mentioned before, this chronic cough, which is now worsened. Um, and at times, she seems to be gagging on her sputum, which also seems to be another source of distress for her. Um, her daughter is still giving her her inhalers, but it's become a progressively more difficult to, to carry out this because the patient is so resistant and, and agitated. So I also went over uh, her medications and what I learned from going through the list, she brought them all with her, um, is that she's on denepazil and mamantine uh, for her dementia. She's at pretty much maximal doses of those at this point. Um, for her COPD, she's on fluticasone and salmeterol, uh, inhaler as well as epitropium two puffs, or she's supposed to be taking it three or four times a day. Um, she also has an as-needed albuterol inhaler uh, for we wheezing or shortness of breath, which as I mentioned before, she's taking only sporadically at this point, even if she does need it. Uh, for her depression, she still continues to be managed on sertraline, even though she hasn't had, according to the family, clinical signs of this for some time. For her hypertension, she's on lisinopril. For her hypothyroidism, she's on levothyroxine. And she's also uh, supplementing with a, a multivitamin daily. So I, I know that this is obviously a complex case, and um, I already get the sense from what a couple of you said that our um, plan of care is going to have to look at both a, a plan for the patient and a plan for this family. And I know that, Linda, you spent quite some time talking to the daughter and trying to fill in the gaps about a psychosocial history. Mm -hmm. Could you fill us, fill us in now with what you found? Sure. I spent a little bit of time with um, the patient and her mother. I mean, the, the daughter and the mother at the same time. And then I spent about an hour with the daughter alone. And she was very obviously on the verge of really being overwhelmed and she talked about chaos. Um, they did move the mother into their home about five years ago, but there has been a steady decline. And so of late, um, it's really been pressure on the husband and the wife. So also their children recently went away to college, both of them. Um, and that's been an issue too. So having the mother in the home uh, has been a stress on the marriage. Uh, it's been a stress on the daughter, particularly since she gave up working and has been the primary caregiver for a couple of years now. She really misses working. Um, and they really don't know how to figure out how to manage going forward. So I can see in the future having, oh, there are also two sisters uh, involved. The patient has three daughters. And the primary caregiver is the woman that we met today. 
Um, the other two daughters do live not too far away, but really are not very much engaged in a system of caregiving. So that's something to look into, you know, as we move forward with this family. Um, I also sensed with the daughter, uh, part of what she's struggling with at this point in time is that sometimes her mother does present clearly and they'll have moments of tenderness. Um, but she is also, the daughter is resentful that she has to be taking care of the patient at this point in time. So it's a complicated combination of family factors and um, fear about what's going to be happening moving forward. So also the patient had been married, um, the husband died after a long battle with cancer. Everybody was very involved with taking care of him and the patient was very independent during that period of time. Um, so there's also that in their, in their background from 10 years ago. The patient is used to being very independent and when she had to have um, in the apartment, um, the kitchen needed to be shut down. And I think according to the daughter, that's really added to the anger and the agitation um, as far as the patient goes because she is used to being an independent person taking care of her husband, working, and living on her own. Um, they are Catholic. Um, the patient did have a good relationship with, um, with her local parish. However, at this point in time, you know, their need, they are in need of spiritual guidance. Um, Rabbi, I wonder if you might sure. step in and, and talk about um, your let me ask uh, again. Let's um, make sure that we get all the data, and um, and then we'll develop a, a plan. I think that may include this component of dealing with the estrangement that they have from the church. But uh, Rabbi Blank, can you fill in some history about about this uh, uh, this event that involved the church? It sounds like it sounds like from what Linda was saying and from what um, I heard from you all before that. They, this, they, they had a close relationship with the church and now they describe it as uh, the parish as being out of sight, out of mind. And, um, and it sounds like that's going to be an important area for our intervention, but what else did you hear from the daughter or the patient that, that can inform us on that? Sure. Well, first of all, I did a spiritual assessment. <clears throat> I also introduced myself and uh, shared with her that I work with uh, multi-faith, multicultural individuals, and actually she felt uh, relieved that she was not engaging uh, somebody at the church, um, and that she felt comfortable, and it's one of the things that uh, she shared with me at the end of our conversation, that she felt that not only was I not judgmental, but I was able to uplift her in a good way, um, and that she was able to confide in me certain things that she would not have done with a priest, at least not at this time. Mm -hmm. um, definitely what occurred for she her mother has been ill and diagnosed uh, maybe four five six years already so uh, <clears throat> there is a sense of guilt there's a sense of uh, a little bit of an abandonment uh, that her sisters are not uh, uh, you know yes. involved in the case yes. um, she didn't elaborate why but that's a sense of feeling that uh, she's left alone she and her husband to take care of a mother who has declined she shared a, a sense of fear of dying. Her father died of uh, cancer, and now her mother is declining. And uh, as you all know, somebody with dementia or Alzheimer's, especially at her stage, there's a sense of already grief of losing her mother in a different way. So not only is she fearful that her mother might die in, in the foreseeable future, but she's losing her mother. She's lost her mother. She's not the same mother that she ever knew. Um, so that's concerning. Yeah. Um, so there are other things that she shared with me, and you know, she's uh, concerned uh, about what to do with her mother, and not only that, self-care for herself and her husband, and she's at a loss uh, as to what to do, not only for herself, uh, the relationship between her and her husband, mm -hmm. and that's a major concern, and her children, you know, this is what you call the sandwich uh, generation, that's a very big issue. Um, one thing that she found uh, meaningful is that I engaged the mother. Uh, at that present time, she was not agitated, but nevertheless, you know, you could see that she was a little bit removed because of her illness. Mm -hmm. And I gently put my hand next to her hand 
just to get a sense, would she let me hold her hand? And because as you know, sometimes when you touch a patient's hand, you will jump away. And she actually felt good. And I caressed gently her hand and I took hold of both my hands and I spoke to her. And of course I asked the daughter if she could share with me how she addresses her mother, a name would she like. And I decided I'd like to sing to her. And I sang a song for her. And I used my very special instrument, uh, my cell phone, my YouTube. <laughs> and I asked the patient, would you like me to play for you something of a religious nature from the church? And she looked at me. And I look at that look as perhaps maybe she was saying yes. So I found something that would be calming, something of a religious nature, something that you might hear in the church. Uh, sacred music, let's put it that way. And she found it uh, meaningful. And then she actually grabbed hold of with both her hands. The daughter was watching this and she couldn't get over that it was possible to engage her mother in a positive way, in a way that she has not been able to. And one of the concerns that she's had is she never had the opportunity of really engaging of what to do as a daughter or a patient. And I think that having met with you, all three of you, actually gave her some relief that now there is a team who is uh, bringing comfort and reassurance that there is something that can be done. And uh, so let's, let's hold that uh, thought because I think you both have given us some great insights into, into how to structure the plan of care for the, the next period of time that we're going to be working with this patient and family. Um, there were a couple of other points uh, that I think uh, we just want to make sure that we're all clear on. Uh, the patient does have insurance. She's insured by Medicare and was recently receiving disability. Uh, that was in the records. She also has a small retirement fund. Um, the daughter uh, indicated that she and her husband were, um, were helping to pay the bills for the mother and that uh, they were feeling financial stress between paying for college and paying for the uh, mother. Uh, the mother, the mother um, did fill out a healthcare proxy at the time that she had capacity, according to the daughter. The daughter is her legal power of attorney for health decisions, and um, uh, the daughter naming that and that document named the daughter as her primary agent, and her other daughters were named as secondary agents. Uh, we don't uh, that form the healthcare proxy was not available with the records that came with the patient today, but the daughter said that she would be able to get it for us. Um, I know, Dr. Lugasi, you spent a few minutes trying to get uh, information about the patient's um, prior expressed wishes, whether or not the healthcare proxy included any comments uh, relative to a living will or whether there was anything mm -hmm. else that you could glean from the daughter. Mm -hmm. um, I, I don't think that you um, you got anything specific, though, right? No, you know, she she really said that her, her mother had been stoic and they really hadn't discussed um, significantly in terms of these issues in the past. And there was also, uh, um, just rounding out her past history, the social history revealed that long smoking history and no other problems with drug abuse, right? Correct, yeah, really no, no significant substance issues. So fill us in um, a bit more about the family history and then I know, um, I think unless there's any other additional history to get from the team, mm -hmm. we'll just hear about her examination findings, her general examination and a neurologic examination from you, and then we'll, we'll, we'll start talking about what the plan might be. Sure, so, so the family history uh, revealed that the patient's mother had died at age 78 from an NMI. Um, her mother also had a history of uterine cancer. Her father died at age 66 of lung cancer. Uh, she was an only child. Her daughter, her other sister are healthy to date. Um, going through the review of systems, um, there was no signs of active infection. She hadn't had recent loss of consciousness. Um, it did show that there's probably some weight loss given that her clothes are looser, but really they haven't been able to sort of get her on a scale because of her behavioral issues. She didn't report any nonverbal or verbal signs of pain. There was no indications of a urinary tract infection. Um, and other than the episodes of incontinence that she's had, she hasn't had any changes in bowel function, no signs of constipation, and no skin problems. So when I examined her, um, she was 
initially sitting in the chair. Um, she was slightly disheveled, which sort of goes along with what we've been hearing about how she's really resisting any type of uh, hygiene or basic care. Um, she did look somewhat anxious and notably, even though she wasn't overtly agitated during our assessment, um, it did really require several minutes of, of prompting really to allow her uh, her blood pressure to be checked. And you could see that this was a source of anxiety for her. And interestingly, I could also see that this was a source of uh, stress for her daughter as well. And she was sort of I could, trying to convince her mother and talking louder and faster to try to get her to do this with, with little result. But ultimately, we did get the, the vitals done. Uh, they were all within normal limits. Um, the rest of her physical exam was really cardiac, pulmonary, um, abdominal exam was was normal. Um, on her neuro exam, it was really consistent with someone who has a sort of a moderate to later stage dementia. Um, she was alert. She was oriented to person only. Um, she spoke. She could speak five to six word uh, words at a time, not sort of long, complicated sentences, but could answer basic questions. Um, she did perseverate on certain words and thoughts. Um, her naming was impaired, so she couldn't identify. I would say what part of my body is this? She couldn't say what it was, um, but she could answer some basic, follow some basic one-step commands, but that sort of broke down when you asked her to carry out more complicated tasks. Um, she couldn't recall any objects at five minutes. I asked her to repeat three objects, no memory of them, um, and I asked her to draw an object, and she just outright refused to do that. Um, her cranial nerve exam uh, was normal. She did have a moderate postural tremor, and she had a wide-based uh, somewhat unsteady gait, so fall is a concern. Um, her deep tended reflexes were two plus, they were symmetric. She had absent ankle jerks and she had a positive Rubinsky sign in both feet. So I think if you take the information we gleaned from the pulmonologist notes and some other materials that she brought, the geriatrician's input and the insights that all of you gained from seeing the patient and the patient's daughter this morning, you can, I think it would be fair to say that we can summarize this case as a 69-year-old woman with early onset Alzheimer's disease, now fast 6E, more or less, moderately severe uh, Alzheimer's disease, and who is brought by her family with a chief complaint of agitation and combativeness. The major medical comorbidity is moderately severe COPD, the management of which is becoming very difficult because of the patient's inability to uh, to co cooperate with nebulizer use. The family caregiver lacks resources, including financial resources, psychosocial resources, and now resources from the church with which she had been very close, and she seems highly distressed and burdened. And at this point, I think, I feel, uh, and I'd like your opinions if you disagree, I feel like we have enough information to develop a plan of care. Mm -hmm. and, um, and obviously with a situation like this, one of the issues uh, that always comes up is that how do we decide what to focus on? Uh, we have somebody who's uh, quite symptomatic from COPD. She's short of breath with walking a short distance. She has coughing jags and has trouble controlling sputum. It's a very significant problem. We have a patient who has progressive dementia and she may be losing weight. And the question is whether or not some of the symptoms and signs of dementia are being dealt with. We have a family caregiver and a family system that feel that appears to be under great stress. And so the question is, what do we focus on? And um, I'm, I'm working on the assumption, like with our other cases, that one of you will volunteer to give the daughter a call this afternoon. And I see you're smiling. You, no, you're I'm, usually the good one sure. volunteering about this. Happy. Okay. So our goal for this session now is let's think about a plan of care that will be actionable as of today, that you are going to call the patient's daughter today with a plan, which obviously then it can evolve in future days and weeks. And, and, um, and the question is, what do we focus on? Well, I didn't mention it uh, because it's so obvious, but it seems like what we should focus on is actually what the chief complaint is, and that is that this patient's behavioral disturbances, which have relatively recent onset and are worsening, appear to be um, compromising their, her caregiver's ability to care for her, right. having a very severe negative impact on the caregiver's lives themselves. And, um, and if we do not get control over or help this family get control over this symptom, 
uh, everything else we might do to help them is going to be compromised. So I'd like to propose that we first focus on the chief complaint, which are the behavioral disturbances mm -hmm. associated yes. with advanced mm -hmm. dementia. Everybody agree with that? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Well, fortunately, um, we have a um, an expert who can talk to us a little bit about this chief complaint, these recent onset of behavioral disturbances, which in this patient, uh, uh, just repeating what you've all discovered this morning, includes agitation, combative, combativeness, uh, uh, sleep reversal. And, um, and the question is, what's the management strategy from a high level? And then very specifically, what can we implement today mm -hmm. in a telephone call that we'll have with the daughter? What can we do today to get, get started on a road where this is very complex symptom is going to be managed? Mm -hmm. And I was teasing a bit, but Dr. Lagasse, you have great experience with this, and maybe you can fill us in and give us a sense of what the options are. Sure, and, and I, I, it really can't be overemphasized how important it is to really manage behavioral symptoms in dementia. It's almost like they have tentacles. We can see that in addition to just the primary behavioral disturbances that she's having, which are obviously will be of distress to the patient, it's affecting her the family's ability and, and, and doctor's ability to manage her COPD as well, and it's clearly contributing to major family distress. And often these things can become vicious cycles mm -hmm. where her uh, agitation is out of control. We can't manage, for example, her COPD. The COB, COPD symptoms worsen, that worsens the behavioral symptoms, and it can go around and around. So it's really important that we take a, a targeted approach. So I think really there's, there's two steps that we need to take first. Um, number one is to really try to clearly define what type of agitation we're dealing with. Agitation is sort of a general term, but how we approach it or how we define it will shape uh, our treatment pattern. And I think in this case, we're really dealing to some degree with a specific type of agitation, which is uh, resistance to care which is very common and a significant source of distress. She also sounds like she has some more sort of spontaneous agitation as well, for example, awakening at night. But I think for the purposes of now, we'll focus on this resistance to care since it's so distressing and it's really impacting the whole rest of her care plan. Um, the other thing we wanna do once we kind of define what type of behavioral issues we're dealing with is to try to look at any modifiable Factors. It's sort of easy to say, well, she's demented, of course, you know, she's agitated. But in many cases, there are specific factors that you can look at and manage. And they generally, and, and I think it, we illustrate with our, our patient here, that they really come in, in two forms, internal uh, factors, which are intrinsic to the patient, and external environmental factors. So, for example, in terms of internal factors, one of the most common things is physical sources of distress, which in dementia, it's very common for those to be unaddressed. And in our patient here, as we know that her, her language ability is decreasing, she can get some basic facts out, but it's hard for her to really fluently express herself. So we have to ask herself, does she have, for example, um, untreated pain? Is she constipated? Uh, is she fatigued? Of course, sort of, we did a good, pretty comprehensive review of systems and assessment. So in her case, it doesn't seem like she has active pain or constipation, which are high on the list, but she certainly does have breathlessness, which could, when, which is being undermanaged, so that could contribute. Um, we always want to look, of course, for other contributing medical conditions. Is there a delirium going on, maybe from an untreated infection? In her case, this has been going on pretty consistently for six months, so it's unlikely to be a delirium, which would have much more of a waxing and waning quality, but it's easy to miss that, so we always want to think about that. Um, have there been any changes, for example, in her medications? None recently for her, but again, something that we always want to think about. Um, the other thing which I think it's important to think about are there psychological factors which are contributing? We know she has a history of depression. Um, she's being treated for that right now, but could there be, could this be worsening at this point as her overall physical condition declines and she's just not able to express it? Is she anxious? Is she scared? Uh, her daughter did know that she has these periods when she kind of look, looks 
looks around and open her eyes, but doesn't seem to be able to articulate what's going on. Um, and then the other thing, in, in addition to these intrinsic factors, are there any external factors? For example, issues with a caregiver or changes in the environment. People with dementia are very sensitive um, to these types of changes, and they can't always express it. So for example, we, as we saw, she got very agitated when they tried to bring in someone new to care for her. So that would be a real trigger for her. Have there been other changes in the routine or in the environment? So it sounds like that new caregiver was one thing, but it might be helpful to think about making sure that there is that consistent environment going forward and that any changes are introduced in a very gradual and, and gentle way. Um, the other thing I would mention is that um, it's very easy for people uh, with dementia to misinterpret external stimuli. Someone with dementia, um, in addition to losing their ability to speak, they lose their ability to understand other people's spoken language. So for example, when her daughter was trying to convince her loudly and quickly to get her blood pressure checked, um, even though the words were very well-meaning, um, our patient may have not been able to actually understand those words and may have just picked up on the stress tone and the, and the tension in her and might react to that. Uh, visual stimuli can also be very confusing and misinterpreted and, and frightening as well. Um, so as I mentioned before, we really want to focus in on treating any of these stressors. So I think in her case, uh, trying to control the, the resistance to care so that we can get in and effectively treat the COPD um, will be very helpful. On the flip side, we may need to think of some other ways that we can gently and effectively manage her breathlessness so that this in turn doesn't sort of contribute to that vicious cycle and worsen the agitation. I think, you know, we always want to look at are there non-essential medications? I think we would, of course, want to collaborate with her geriatrician and pulmonologist. Um, I think everything that she's taking at this point is probably necessary. I, I think they've already pared down her regimen a bit. Um, and then it might be helpful to collaborate with uh, her geriatrician to see, and they didn't ask him this, if they've checked uh, her thyroid levels, because certainly high or low can affect the internal state and, and behavior. Um, and then finally, it's it, dealing with these things is really, and I think will be in her case, a combination of both pharmacologic and non-pharmacologic interventions. In some cases, you can sort of get away with, with starting with just non-pharmacologic interventions first, which can go a long way. But in her case, given the degree, how it's impairing her care and having such an impact on the family, I think we really need to do both at the same time. So in terms of pharmacotherapy with somebody uh, with dementia, so there's two things. One is sort of you can use pharmacotherapy, of course, to treat uh, underlying causes. So if she's had pain, we would work with the pain medicines. Dyspnea, adjust those. If we sort of have new evidence that, you know, there may be some signs of worsening depression, certainly treating with an antidepressant is a possibility. But then there's also more targeted therapy, particularly um, to the agitation. And generally, as we know, one of the mainstays of this would be uh, starting with a low dose of a neuroleptic and, and titrating. And of course, the options that we have are the atypical antipsychotics, which would be the category of things like quetiapine, olanzapine, and risperdone. These particularly quetiapine tends to have fewer uh, extrapyramidal symptoms. So in many cases, if that's an issue, we might start with that. And then there's also the option of the typical antipsychotics like haloperidol as well. So you can think about the side effect profile. And particularly with someone with a worsening dysphagia, you always want to think about the route as well and, and the ease of being able to, to take or to swallow a pill in, in varying routes. Um, if these don't work, um, things down the road, I wouldn't start them right now. There are other options for really a refractory agitation. So we could think about things like carbamazepine, which has some limited evidence, which shows uh, some reduction of agitation and aggression in advanced dementia compared to placebo, or a combination medication of dextromethorphine quinidine, which is actually approved for a pseudobulbar affect, which is sort of uncontrolled crying and laughing, which she doesn't appear to have. Mm -hmm. But there's also been some recent clinical evidence 
which has shown that it can be used to reduce agitation or aggression in patients with dementia as well. Um, so those are some of our options. And, and before we talk about the non-pharmacological techniques that mm -hmm. might be used to manage the symptoms, um, let's pin you down because I think one of the things we we need to decide is whether or not we recommend drug therapy today and, mm -hmm. and institute it, inform the geriatrician and the pulmonologist and institute it. I think, um, would you be in favor of doing that? And if so, what would you pick? Yeah, I, I, I would. I think it's it's often, like I said, I like to sort of start with non-pharmacological interventions first, but I think she really needs it at this point. I think for her, I would recommend starting with quetiapine um, and I, going with that mainly based on, on the side effect profile because it does have a lower risk of uh, extrapyramidal symptoms and, and other side effects. And, and she doesn't have a history of Parkinsonism, for example, but she is, for example, she's unstable. She is at a fall risk, so we want to be particularly cautious. Mm -hmm. And then someone like her, we want to start low. Um, I would start just with a dose of, at night, I'd say 25 milligrams, which is pretty much the lowest dose. And it may also help both with agitation and with sleep as well. So we start with 25 at night and then go up probably by 25 milligrams every few days, depending on how she tolerated it. I think we all agree that the non-pharmacological interventions, um, if we can establish uh, these interventions uh, under the, uh, to make the, the daughter and the, and the son-in-law accountable for these interventions and have them applied in some consistent way that could bear fruit. So why don't we just run through some of the ones that are commonly used and then we can talk about what will be in our plan of care. Sure. So a lot of these really are focusing on uh, limiting stressors for the patient and the family and sort of part of it is sometimes choosing your battle. That's uh -huh. just sort of simplifying regimen so that you don't engage in these, in these back and forths with patients with dementia. Um, there's often a tendency for families to try to reason and explain why the patient needs to do something, but it's not something the patient is able to cognitively process anymore. So instead, we wanna focus on the reasons for the resistant and then try to work around that. So for example, uh, if she's having, someone's having trouble uh, dressing or undressing, you can really limit the wardrobe to easy to remove items, so things without zippers and buttons, but just Velcro things that the patient may be able to so pull off themselves or participate in that without being frustrated. Um, showers and bathing are a big source of stress for patients and families, uh, particularly they can be frightening. They may think like our patient is drowning. So sometimes it, at some point it comes time to just say, the shower or the bath is too much and switch to a sponge bath, which in many cases is easier and gets the job done just as well. Um, another thing which is really helpful is providing um, some distraction to the patient, um, either you know holding an object. Um, I think Rabbi, you were really onto something when you were talking about how you were interacting with our patient holding her hand and then when you play music and she sort of calmed down, there's actually been studies which have shown that playing music um, to a patient when they're undergoing care who has dementia can really reduce mm -hmm. some of the uh, resistance to care. So that might be an option for her. And then part of it also is working um, with the family mm -hmm. to help them uh, provide more easier or effective care and often there's guilt and an anxiety on the part of the family and of course we want to do it in a non-judgmental way because they're trying their best but they need education as to how to provide care so helping them to recognize those stressors teaching them ways to interact with their family uh, to be mindful of their tone and their facial expression um, so that the patient isn't picking up on it um, also coaching them in speaking in, in simple phrases, not infantilizing the, their family member, but speaking just in simple phrases so that their family member is better able to understand what's going on um, can be helpful. Limiting visual clutter, so the, having just the simple necessary objects in the patient's visual field so they don't become overwhelmed um, by their surrounding can all be very helpful. So let's, uh, that's, that's very helpful to get this sort of all on a menu. Mm -hmm. And I'm, I'd like to encourage us now to, to come up with a, a small group of non-pharmacological approaches that we'll introduce to the daughter this afternoon, and then maybe elaborate in, in when we get a sense of their capabilities and their, and their willingness to work on this. Uh, we can expand on that in later visits. So let me start, we'll just go this way. Let me start with Wanda first. I mean, how, how would you want to educate the daughter about 
a non-pharmacological approach to manage these behavioral disturbances? Well, one thing is um, we had mentioned setting a routine, you know, because we don't want to change it up every day and have something very different because that's that's distracting. So setting a routine, introducing the sponge bath, and definitely the, the tone that she's not escalating the voice when she's not doing something. And would you recommend um, a calendar, sort of a cheat sheet to help the daughter or to encourage the daughter to set to establish a schedule and stick to a schedule? Yeah, that helps. You know, everybody has their own way of liking to organize things, but a written calendar. And if the mother has happens to have a good day where she has any reading ability, she can see what's what's coming. So let's say let's put on our list. And again, I know Linda, you're taking some notes, and that's great. <laughs> expressing this to the daughter. So one thing is we we want to explain to the daughter what Dr. Lagasse taught us, which is that the brain pathology may mean that the patient's um, has a receptive aphasia, and we can't assess it because of their dementia. So the patient may not be understanding the words. And the daughter who demonstrated in the visit today that she got upset when the blood pressure was being done and actually so it got revved up to try to encourage mom meant well, but probably made the situation worse. So if we could educate her about that and then help her understand that mm -hmm. keeping a, a quiet tone just just like uh, Rabbi Blank um, had that quiet tone and he was describing mm. the music to us. I almost nodded off. <laughs> yeah. um, that's, I think that's a very good thing and we'll put that on the list. And then secondly, maybe uh, encourage her to build a calendar of daily activities and see if and the, the, uh, the aquatypine that the patient is getting, hopefully some of that sleep reversal will be improved mm -hmm. starting tonight. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so putting a calendar that has a bedtime and an awake time and then, you know, offering food, then a bath, then offering a sponge bath, however, however it works for the family. Yeah. But I think those are things that you would stress, Wanda, and I, and yeah. I think that's definitely something you know, we could do routine. tonight. So that one day to the next is very familiar for the patient and it's not distressing that, you know, one day, the bath is offered at nine o'clock the next day, the right. bath is offered at three o'clock in the afternoon. Right. To keep the pattern the same so that she falls into a routine. And patients do very well with routine. And Linda, do you have any additional items for today? Yeah. Well, yeah, and the routine is very important also because it gives the family then a bit of a sense of control. I mean, all of the things that we can recommend will help to give them a sense of control over the situation that's uncontrollable. Um, but also then somebody else can step in. If there's a calendar, if there's a schedule, then, it, you know, it's not, the onus is not on just one person. And some of the things too, I think psychoeducation is so key, you know, if they can get involved as a family and, you know, we can look into it, Alzheimer's Association, but to have good educational pieces for all of the family members, I think will go a long way. We can look into Medicaid, see if we can help them in that way. But I think to start with, with um, initially, you know, what I'll present this afternoon is to the daughter is to start with a good family meeting. You know, all three daughters and the husband because they're the primary caretakers and then take it from there to see if we can give them support and um, so as part of our education. So as part of our plan of care, um, recommending a, another visit to our clinic for yes. a family member, a meeting with yes. the entire family yes. living in this area. That's right. Possibly even the children if they're home from college. Well, in subsequent, it, I think probably to meet with, with the core group, mm -hmm. essentially, and then to bring in the grandchildren, okay. because we can see them. So let's put that on our plan, because that sounds very uh, reasonable. Um, so Rabbi Blank, was there anything else sure. in terms of the behavioral disturbances? Yes, that you there were, are a number of suggestions I'd like to make. <clears throat> but following what both of you have suggested, um, anything that I would make a recommendation definitely needs to be in collaboration with both of you because scheduling when the time is appropriate, you know, we don't want uh, to introduce something and then because of the patient's behavior or the family's inability to deal with it, um, knowing that she can speak to both of you and get a sense of what you both feel would be in the best interest of the patient and the family really would be beneficial. Mm -hmm. So, and actually that's part of what I do is to collaborate with our team members. Um, just like to mention, first of all, before I begin, is that um, I asked the daughter, knowing that uh, 
she doesn't practice her faith, Catholicism, and her husband is not. Um, how would she feel if I would offer good wishes or perhaps even a blessing uh, to her mother or to her? And she said to me, you know something? Because my mom was above about a Catholic, I think it would be appropriate to have a blessing. And coming from you, it would be meaningful. And um, there was one blessing they gave was uh, that from the Psalms that the God is the healer of shattered hearts. And knowing that there are so many shattered hearts here, it's heartbreaking on how to deal with the mother and her condition, her husband and herself and her children. And I felt that such a, a blessing would be helpful. And she appreciated that. The other reason I, I, I uh, gave me a heads up that she would be open to something of a, of a suggestion in a religious sense for her mother, and she would not be adverse. Because sometimes, you know, family would say, I don't want to hear anything religion for whatever reasons they've gone through. So some of the suggestions, and by the way, initially I thought, you know, it would be a bad idea to have perhaps if we could get in touch with a priest of the local parish, either with permission, I would be happy to, or they would be, and perhaps a priest or a layperson would come. However, because she was, uh, she had a difficult situation with the aide, who was a stranger, I feel at that point, or at this point, bringing in somebody she doesn't know might not be beneficial. Mm -hmm. So some of the thoughts I had that I would like to introduce with the daughter would be number one, to introduce some sacred music. Uh, in addition to regular music, because patients in general love music, and it's good to get uh, to hear from the daughter what type of music that the daughter, that mm -hmm. the mother enjoyed listening to. Yeah, and she responded so well when you did that intervention yes. with her during your during your session. So those those little simple things that they can right. write, and then once there's stability in how the patient's doing, then we can talk to them about how to introduce and, and, and extra model that. Right. Yeah. And the other, I just want to add, uh, is, uh, you know, uh, as time goes on, to introduce rituals that she was used to, perhaps also pictures of church services, yes. um, hearing the church service, anything that would bring back bond or important memories are in a religious sense. Right. And to do this in increments and to see how she responds to them. And aside from, you know, being able just to speak to the to learn how to speak to her mother, maybe poetry or something that was meaningful to her. And to do these things in increments and things that are meaningful mm -hmm. and pleasurable. And that if she could see that she could engage her mother mm -hmm. and find a positive response, mm -hmm. I think it would be very helpful. I think this is, um, you know, initially my, my thought was that we could talk specifically about behavioral disturbances. But as you all spoke, you were, talking about things on our plan of care that we're addressing the progressive dementia, the right. family distress. And, I, and I'm aware that um, it's, it is difficult to only talk about one symptom in, when a patient or family presents such a complex array of problems. And, and it was artificial of me to try to get us focused on the chief complaint because the chief complaint in the context of everything that was going on neglected too much. So I think what, what I think what I'm hearing and uh, will ask Linda to do is, is, to, is to develop a plan to speak with the daughter that does address the, 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 the agitation and the resistance right. and do that and does that with a drug therapy and does that with some very simple non-pharmacologic interventions, but also begin to present to her uh, our thoughts about the bigger picture here. And, and there are many other things that we could talk about including her symptoms and her medical conditions, like her COPD, whether there might be specific issues, uh, specific interventions for the, uh, the, the, the daughter or the husband or them as a dyad, um, care coordination issues, advanced care planning issues. I would just ask, uh, before we break today, I'd like to uh, ask Dr. Lagasse just to address the COPD as an issue. Mm -hmm. um, because there are a number of pharmacologic and non-pharmacologic strategies that we might think about introducing for dyspnea mm -hmm. that don't involve um, either the use of a nebulizer or any other kind of therapy that would be challenging for her. Mm -hmm. For example, the use of a low-dose opioid. Mm -hmm. 
from the pharmacological side. And some of the pharma, some, some, some of the non-pharmacological mm -hmm. strategies, like the use of a fan for, uh, for dyspnea, mm -hmm. uh, should we build these in now into our initial plan of care? I, I think it would be useful um, because you really, in a way, you can't talk about uh, the agitation without talking about the dyspnea because in many cases the dyspnea might be contributing to the agitation. Um, so for periods of acute dyspnea, we definitely could consider a, a low dose of an opiate, probably something that uh, is probably not going to cooperate with taking a pill, but probably just a very low dose of a sublingual morphine, 2.5 or 5 milligrams right. every four or six hours is needed, could be helpful. Um, and we could see if, if that may actually, for the acute dyspnea is relieved, that may actually um, improve some of the agitation. Um, other things could be, you know, having a fan available um, to aim directly at her face, um, which could certainly um, help with minimizing some of the dyspnea. And I was also thinking, um, since it seems like one of the triggers is that when she walks across the room, she gets you know, acutely short of breath. We don't want to immobilize her, but certainly we can think about some energy conservation strategies. So for example, we can re-engineer her room. For example, if there's a particular chair that she sits in and she gets very winded to walk to the bathroom, we can sort of perhaps move the chair closer to the bathroom so she's not involving in, in, in activities that are really triggers for, for the dyspnea. So let me, let me um, put a hold on our conversation just for a second and turn to our audience and determine whether there are any questions or comments. Uh, please uh, uh, enter your questions now. We'll give you a, a minute to enter any questions. We have, a, we have about five minutes to uh, respond to them. Uh, here's a question. Um, the question is about hospice eligibility. One way to get services in the home is to hospice. Could you make a referral now? That's a good question. So why don't we start with medical eligibility, Dr. Lugasi? Sure. So I think she, I would describe her as sort of on the pathway at this point to becoming hospice eligible. She's not there yet, but it's very possible that soon, uh, particularly since she has some periods of accelerated decline, she may be entering one of those. If we sort of look at the classic hospice eligibility for uh, Alzheimer's disease, we're talking about someone who is a, a FAST7A or below, meaning they're dependent for all ADLs, they're incontinent, and they really uh, speak six words or under a day. Um, in her case, she's she's not there yet, um, but other indications that might, and, and I want to just emphasize that someone can be really hospice eligibility despite sort of these strict parameters really is determined based on a clinical assessment as to whether someone has a prognosis of six months or less. So where someone like her, where she has two significant diagnoses, we're really factoring all of those things into her hospice eligibility. So even, for example, if she still was able to talk, you know, six words or more down the road, but was at a point where she had become uh, bed bound, was developing pressure ulcers, had worsening dysphagia, was losing weight, had recurrent infections, those things could make her hospice eligible at that point. In the same way, we also want to consider her COPD as a factor in hospice eligibility. So if she also gets to the point where she's now becoming hypoxic on Rumir, her O2 status in the 80s, she's needing to go back and forth to the hospital for COPD exacerbations, she's ongoing dyspnea at rest, all of those could contribute to hospice eligibility as well. Uh, here we have another question, uh, another challenging question. As an as a interdisciplinary palliative care team, would you ever recommend placement in a nursing home? No. Mm. Linda, why don't you start with that one? Would we ever do that? In maybe extreme cases. I mean, we don't know this family well enough, and we don't know what their projection is and what their capabilities are. I would guess, looking at this family, that that probably would not be necessary. However, if um, it came to the point that there was danger no matter what was done in the home, I could see that that might be something that would have to happen. But from what we see here and now, I don't think so. And Wanda, you were going to comment? Yeah, it's just like Linda was saying, is we work with the family to try to maximize what they have. But there it comes a point in time, despite everybody's best right. wishes, 
where it is not safe and reasonable to keep the patient in a home with two caregivers who are exhausted. So we want to look at everything. And also, it would be helpful, too, to have a home visit, you know, to look at things. Is, is the TV on all the time? What the safety measures are? And all of that. I'd just like to uh, add my two cents. Yeah. <clears throat> this is really the first major encounter <clears throat> with a group of professionals, as I said earlier, that is bringing comfort to them to know that there are individuals that they can confer with and mm -hmm. can give them advice and suggestions on how to take care of the mother. This is something that they haven't done for many years. And perhaps with that, you might be able to see some results that uh, may be going right. to a nursing home mm -hmm. won't be necessary. Won't be necessary. Yeah. Well, that's all the time we have for questions. I want to thank the interdisciplinary team for a wonderful set of insights and an excellent plan of care, which will be implemented this afternoon. Hopefully, as Rabbi Blank just suggested, all will go well. Uh, sometimes it does and sometimes it doesn't, but hopefully it all will go well. I want to thank our audience for participating and, and inform you all that the next webinar will be palliative care in the post-stroke patient. Uh, that will be by Dr. Mara Lugasi, who's the Senior Hospice Medical Director here at MJHS Hospice and Palliative Care. That webinar will take place on Thursday, September 14th, 2017 at 12.30 uh, in the afternoon. I wanna remind you all to please complete your evaluations uh, so that we can uh, gain your insights in terms of future planning for these sessions. Thank you very much.